0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by my pals Evan Grant and David Moore. Evan and I out here in the desert. David back in
1: Siberia, where it is freezing, David. Braving the tundra here. Have uh, a have, uh, little sweat top on. Uh, <laughs> got, got, these have to be the light, coldest, I would say, 48 hours since uh, February course it's all relative right but it's uh no it feels great back here but i i imagine you two aren't braving the uh the crisp elements where you are
0: no but that's that's why they had the roof open uh last night at chase field uh well, which let, was, let me ask about me. that
1: cause, yeah because i have never been out there uh have, haven't been to a game there and i was wondering how that stadium compares to globe life and, and just some others around the league Evan, why don't you uh, go first on that question?
2: Well, Kevin, you have strong opinions. I believe I looked over your shoulder at one point in time last night, and you were <laughs> referring to um, the lighting as something out of a pool hall or yeah. perhaps uh, mood lighting. Um, yeah. it, it is, and I will say this. I had talked to a couple of Rangers sitters, and they they had said before they came out here that the lighting here is weird. Um and that the, the, the field is a little bit darker. And it, it's it's um, not a great hitting background as far as they are concerned. Um, but listen, this is, I don't have the full timeline of retractable roof stadiums here. But this one was built and opened in 98. And so it is uh, going on 30 years. And the lease is coming out, due on this. And, and the, the Diamondbacks would like to get something, of course, newer and fresher. Was um, it at
1: the front end of the curve on the retractable roof stadiums in the league? Uh,
2: I would say it was
0: the front end. It, it There were other, obviously, you know, Skydome yeah. was the first yeah. and, uh, and there have been others since then. Uh, and before that, I mean, that was always it, the question right? of when, when the, when the ball, the old ballpark in Arlington was built, that was one of the reasons why, you know, the, well, first of all, you know, George Bush didn't want a, a roof on it, but also the, the feeling was technology was still relatively new within a couple of years uh they they were really popping up. Uh and so it, it was probably I would guess probably within the first half dozen,
2: you know. Oh, so. it was it was very much on the front end. I mean, this opened before Minute Made Park did, I'm pretty sure. So I don't a-
0: I don't think so. I think that was before the, uh, came in before that. I'd have to look, but I. But anyway, the the problem is, it's like uh, there's a couple of things. When when the roof is closed, uh, there is almost no natural light. There's a little bit of glass uh, in the outfield, and that's it. And they could have avoided that. They could have made a lot because they had these huge, you know, uh, panels up there that they have that are basically just billboards. And they could have put glass in those. And, and when the roof is open. They turn those and and pull them, and so there's a, a lot of, of light, and obviously not only on the top, but out there in in center field. But the but the lighting is just so poor. They you know they've they've said that one of the things they wanted was put in. I guess they don't have LED lighting, and that's what they would like to put in there. But it's just very yellowish. You know, you can just uh, you can just tell. It's it's hard to see from the press box. I was. It's the worst lighting that I can think of in a major league ballpark in a long time. I can't remember one where you felt like it was just that dim. And, you know, it's a nice night and uh, out here. It wasn't like there was, you know, there's not a cloud in the sky even in, before it got dark. Uh, so uh, it's, uh, it is a big park for a, uh, a retractable roof stadium. It, hold, it held, what, 48,000? Is that how many were in there last night or yeah. something like that? So, and most of those are in the low 40s, like the ballpark is, uh, or like uh, Globe Life Field is. So, uh, uh,
2: you know, not, not one of my favorites. Once again, to prove that you are incorrect, as usual, um, this was the second retractable roof stadium after Rogers Center, or Skydome as it is called in Toronto. And then within a three-year period, you open this place, you open Seattle, which I think still has, and maybe it's Partly because of the the environment up there and the way it was built, Seattle was next, and then Minute Maid Park, and then and then I think Milwaukee's, um, and you have some different technologies involved in all of these, but this was this was on the front end, and this was like the first place where you could say you can do it cheaper because it's basically what amounts to one sliding, you know, two sliding pieces of tin going back. I don't know why that affects the lighting, though, so much. I I think they should have been able to do a better job of lighting. And for a long time, they had grass in here. Two years ago, when the Rangers also had gone to the artificial turf that they now use, the Diamondbacks went, got it in a year ahead because Globe Life Field wasn't yet open at that point. So it was 19. Um because they had such problems growing grass which is still a problem in Houston you know it, it, it's an awful problem down there. So uh, yeah this stadium feels dated in a lot of ways not the least of which of course being sports writers is we will say that the food here sucks <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's not good.
0: who's not gonna we don't want to complain but food's not good. I will say this the the, the press box view is terrific uh from this stadium they have that's on a good level you know that's but the fancy go ahead i'm sorry well they don't like that but that's the problem with global Life Field. we are we are practically tacked to the ceiling uh so you're you're up so high in global life field I can't read the names on the back of the jerseys. Uh, so you'll hear it is it is a really good seat. They are really good seats. And, and I'm surprised they haven't sold those to the fans, you know, because that's what everybody does now. Right. Once they realize that the press box view is good, they say, hey, well, then let's sell those seats instead of letting those freeloaders come in here and and rip us for our lighting.
2: Well, I do. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I. I'm sure that when they get their new stadium, supposedly in 2028, if they get it, that uh, the, it'll be a different arrangement. But I will say this, and, and I know it doesn't really matter to fans, um, but there is you do. I have noticed this particularly here because the press box is a good view um, and in Baltimore um, where the press box is low. It's hard to convey this to people, but our part of our job is to give them a sense of feel. Um, and it is, it's is—it's difficult sometimes when you are that far away as we are in, in Arlington to, like, actually feel the game in any way, shape, or form. And, and you can feel it here better. But that's yeah. thats neither here nor there. I, I, I will just say this, that uh, Globe Life Field, among the retractable roof stadiums, it's got its own issues that I think Kevin and I both complain about. Also, food. Um, but it, it for, for fans, it's certainly – it certainly is comfortable and it certainly is um, It's state-of-the-art. I will I will say one thing that I did notice I, at game one um, when I did try and walk the concourse is I didn't realize that some of those concourse areas were so narrow and they do get some choke points in there uh, when you've got a full house. But I think these stadiums were built to hold about 30,000 on the regular, not 43. Yeah. Little, uh, little how was the big. stadium
1: for Diamondbacks fans and – Game three of the World Series, you
2: two. Oh, Kevin, that was a transition to actual baseball. Actual baseball, yeah.
0: There we go. Well, I got to tell you, uh, I, you know, watching that game last night, um, of, of course, uh, one of the things that came up was that you know, going into that series, uh, twenty innings played, uh, the Diamondbacks had had led seventeen of those innings uh, so far, and you know, the Rangers led in iconic moments, but, uh, the, the, the had dictated everything, uh, in this series. They, they got on base, they were running wild, they were doing all the things that they do. And, and last night, Max Scherzer and then John Gray just pretty much, uh, threw a, a, a wet blanket over them. Uh, they Scherzer pitched by far the best he has in this postseason, And, um, and I talked to Josh Spores after the game about that. And, and and what he said was obviously true is that, you know, you can't expect a guy to come back a month ahead of time uh, and after having not pitched for over a month and, and then all of a sudden just have all of his best stuff. Um, and he did a really good job. He made one bad pitch to Christian Walker, who uh, hit it off the bottom of the wall in right center for a double and then was erased on a really stupid play by Walker when he tried to score on a single to right field, uh, where Adoles Garcia picked it up and threw him out. the plate by about five minutes. Uh, So, uh, and then when John Gray came in, he's just been a revelation in this series. You know, he's now pitched uh, two relief appearances. My bet is that if Scherzer can't go seven, that they'll go uh, to Gray for that. Uh, He's just pitched so well uh, in this world series. I don't know. But what they would have done without him at this point, frankly, uh, I disagree. You, know, you disagree with which part? Do you disagree?
2: I disagree that uh, that Gray would pitch game would start Game Seven. I think that there's a real possibility if the Rangers have a chance to clinch this series in Game Five, that John may may pitch in relief in Game Five at some point. Um, that would be kind of his bullpen day and then be available to pitch and relief again in game seven, if they need it. I, I think he's, he's such a weapon as a two pitch pitcher that, you know, they're going to use, they're going to maximize their use of him right now um, until Arizona proves that they can, they can hit him. I, I, I don't know if he did start game seven, you know, you'd be limited. I think you'd probably be limited. Like you said, to maybe a three inning stint where he pitches one time through the order. Um, but I, I just wonder right now if if the Rangers would say, especially if they've got is the number of injuries they can, if they've got a game to win in front of them, they're going to try and win that game, and they're going to um, they're going to go to their best guys. And it's it's hard for me to think that John Gray right now is not one of their best options in the bullpen.
0: Well, he is that. There's no question about it. And and that was the other thing that uh, was uh, I learned last night talking to Spores uh, when he said that uh, only only Jose Leclerc probably has more of a rubber arm than Gray does. Uh, he, and he said that you know he he throws long toss the day after he starts. And and I, so I asked John about that, and he said that yeah, I, I pretty much throw hard every day. And he said that so my arm is just kind of used to it, um, which you know. Uh, kind of makes him a little more like a top-end reliever. You know, like when Andrew Miller a few years ago was all the rage in baseball uh, because of his ability to throw uh, multiple innings, Uh, and now John comes in and does that, you know, throws three innings last night. Um, That was uh, phenomenal. And, you know, he was uh, as dominant – he didn't strike out as many in his first uh, – outing against Arizona, he struck out four of the five guys he faced. I think he only had one strikeout last night. But he,
2: no, he, he had three his... last night. He had three. He had three? Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, He's he faced 16 hitters and retired four of them. The fastball was up to 98 miles an hour last night. And the thing is, like, he can, he can kind of eliminate the third pitches. His slider is good right now, and he used that a lot. Again, um, he got ahead of guys. Most importantly, he got ahead of guys with that fastball. And being able to do that allows him to use that slider. Um, and as John said last night, look, I, this relief role has kind of allowed me to get out of my own way um, and just attack the strike zone. Attack it with fastballs and then go after them when you get ahead. And they've got to be aggressive um, with that slider that, that darts out of the zone.
0: Yeah, slider's just been terrific. You know that was the thing you, you really noticed in this game. You know, Corbin Carroll uh, last night did nothing, and uh, they really handled him really well. And you, and that's the thing. You know, they they love to run, right? Uh, and and they didn't have a single stolen base last night. Uh, I, I'm not even at one point. What they end up with four hits, five hits, six
2: hits, something like that. Uh, somewhere in there, Kevin. Who cares? Like uh Evan, the Rangers won. Who cares? Evan, I
0: you're
1: here to be my stat guy, okay?
2: I, I that's why, David. That's
0: why I brought you out here to the desert,
2: okay? David, let me ask
1: let me ask you this. He, he, he did tell me that's why he allowed you to come along to the desert with him. Yeah. David,
2: do yeah. you sit next to Kevin ever at Cowboy Games? <laughs>
1: David though, Kevin what, has in his contract, he wants two people between us at all times at all sporting events. No, I actually went one of the Cowboys game once was told I sat in the wrong place. <laughs> I did not tell you that, sir. Oh, what was, it, Kevin,
2: there, there was something like in the sixth sitting last night, I'm frantically trying to get these five thoughts in that, that are all incoherent. And you look over at me and you said, what was the stat you wanted me to look up last night? I don't know. You always complain. Every time I ask you to look up something, he's got the
0: stat pass, you know, code. I don't have that. He won't let me have it. And so I can't get any of that kind of stuff. And so whenever I ask him for some information, Evan is always very pleasant about it. What? What do you want? You know, People are all looking around saying, why is he being so mean to that old man? What is what is up with that? I,
2: just, I don't I am not mean at all. I said, hang on, Kevin, let me look that up for you. Oh, yeah, that's the way you said it.
0: Oh, that's right. I got Sean McFarlane as my uh, witness on all this stuff.
1: Okay. I thought you were going to tell me the game was almost over and you turned to him to find out what to coordinate what you two were riding and was going, Really? So we, we started with like that. home. wow, how cold is it? Yeah. Well, that uh, that is happening. Well, they,
0: I, I, I don't want to say that there's not uh, a lot of communication going on, but there's not a lot of communication going on sometimes at these games. You know, uh, that was, it gets fast and furious after a while, man. Well, it does. It does, especially at the end of that one, uh, uh, because it was kind of wrapping up as fast as yeah. it did. But uh, I, I will say that they um, they 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 took the crowd completely out of the game last night. There was yeah. uh, no buzz in that game whatsoever until uh, late in it, and I don't think they, I don't think the fans believed in it even then. After Corey Seager's home run. Uh, you could just – the
2: life had just sucked out of
1: them. I all well, talked about the defense, too. I mean, that Adolis throw early.
2: Yeah. You know, they, they had three good plays early. Really, yeah. they did. They yeah. had um, – Young made that – started that double play in the first inning that got Scherzer out of trouble with a really good kind of across-his-body throw. And Simeon, twice on double plays, just got rid of the ball really, really quickly um, with a runner bearing down on him. And then the Adolis throw – And this, of course, will lead to the discussion about what's going to be the situation with Adolis, and we don't have the answer on that right now. He he grabbed his side when he came, uh, when he swung in the eighth inning and did not come back out for the bottom of the eighth. That's an entirely different discussion that we just probably can't have here because it'll be answered by the time this podcast gets up because technology is quick. But not not as quick as as we yeah. could always hope for. And then the thing the, is, well, if
1: there's any sort of tear, there's no way he comes back for this series.
2: No, I mean you yeah. can. There's there's only so much that either uh, cortisone or toradol can do yeah. at this point in time. Um, and if if he doesn't come back, I guess is I'll, I'll just say that the the most likely situation would be to, you know, you, you end up removing him, the ALCS MVP from your roster. You have to replace him with another position player. Ezekiel Duran is here and has been prepping all along. Um, he would probably be the guy that replaces him on a roster. I don't know how the Rangers would play right field. I guess Robbie Grossman would go out there to start the game. And if you got a lead, Travis Jankowski would be out there as soon as possible. I don't think that the Rangers would call. I don't think that there's any way the Rangers could call Wyatt Langford up. I know there is. I know there will be a groundswell of people who would think that that would be the way to go, but he hasn't been around this team and he may still be working out out here at the surprise facility, but he hasn't had the same kind of prep that Duran has had for the last three weeks. Oh, I can't imagine they do Wyatt Langford uh, that way. Uh, I. You know,
0: I, it's an interesting uh, question about how to handle that situation of adults can't play with Grossman and um, uh, Jankowski. You know, Jankowski had a terrific year, a career year for him, and, and then – you know, I, you got the impression after a while that they felt like, well, we got a little lightning out of a bottle there. And, uh, and so that's it. He's done. And, and so then Grossman got all the chances at, at that point. Um, I got to tell you, I, I think I would rather play Jankowski than uh, Grossman. I think you, you give uh, Arizona a little bit its own medicine. Here's another guy you're adding to the lineup who can run a little bit and who can steal a base. Uh, and I think if you put him in, down lower in the lineup uh, where he really did well when he did play earlier in the season uh, with a little bit less pressure on him uh, that he could add a a real element for, for the Rangers. And plus he is a much better fielder than, um, than Grossman is as well. But, you know, I think I can see the, the, the point of uh, starting Grossman, letting him uh, get a couple of at bats, see what he does. And then the same thing they did when they started Grossman in place of Evan Carter. Uh, and, and see how that works.
2: I, I'm with you on this, though. I mean, I, I can see that there would be some thought about, hey, maybe Grossman gives you a little bit more offensive pop early. But I do like the idea that you're, you're keeping your outfield defense at least at the same level with Jankowski out there. He's got great range out there, and he's got, he, he's got a good arm. Um, and I do like the idea that, okay, if you're taking out, you're not going to replace Adolis Garcia if you lose him from the lineup, you're just not. Um, and if you can't replace him, you may have to reshape your lineup a little bit. And, and Jankowski does have the ability to hit and run, does have the ability to bunt, um, does have the ability to run. And maybe you can with, with Tavares and Jankowski at the bottom of your lineup, maybe you can, um force the issue a little bit there and and put the same kind of pressure on Arizona. Look, I, I, Kevin, I think both you and I felt like in the first two games, the tone and the tempo of this game was dictated by Arizona and that the amount of pressure the Diamondbacks created on the bases was significant. Um, And so if the Rangers can do that, Hey, maybe it's, it's, it's it's the way that they need to go.
0: Well, you know, Gabriel Moreno, uh, the uh, Diamondbacks, excellent young catcher. He does dictate a lot of that himself, you know, great arm, uh, and uh, you're going to have to get a good jump uh, uh, to to beat him. But I certainly don't think that could hurt. Uh, Now, Evan, uh, one of the things that happened last night was that uh, Marcus Simeon, who's been in terrible slump, uh, drove in Nate Lowe from third base with a single in the alley, left field alley, uh, last night. Do you think uh, that it's possible that he is starting to to, to kind of rouse himself from this uh, low point? I mean, I, he did at least hit the ball. Uh, there have been a, many games here in this slump of his where all he's doing is popping balls up. Uh, he, he at least hit them to the left side, which he likes to do.
2: Well, listen, I let, let's just go back to that for one second and say that um, – after that single, Brent Strom, the Diamondbacks pitching coach, came out to the mound and in no uncertain terms let, let Fott know, you know, about where exactly he was locating balls, which was not great. Um, and then the next pitch he threw to Corey Seager, Corey rifled it into the right field stands. So he had some problems executing pitches early. The, the at-bat the Simeon, You know, Kevin, you and I looked at the – we went back and looked at the the Fox box or the StatCast box. The first pitch was as center cut as you could possibly get. It was a slider in the dead center of the plate, and Simeon was late on that. That's why he hooked it foul. Um, The second pitch was inside – not not off the plate, inside. It was on the plate, middle third – inner third and up, and that's not how anybody's been pitching Marcus Simeon all postseason when they have executed pitches away, he's not been able to pull those balls and he's popped them up or grounded out. Um, so I, I, I'm not sure if I'm ready to say that Marcus is is back or that he's fixed anything. I think he certainly took advantage of a mistake, and and you, you're not going to get a lot of mistakes in the postseason. And when you do, you do have to take advantage of them. So good for him. I just keep coming back to this. Tonight's going to be the 178th game that Marcus Simeon has played. Um, He's at over 825 plate appearances from the start of the season. The all-time record for a player in in one calendar year, counting regular and postseason, is 833. Marcus is almost 100 plate appearances above his career high. I think all these guys, particularly Simeon and Lowe, who did not go on the IL this year, um, are running on fumes right now. And and maybe the adrenaline of, hey, two, <clears throat> two more games to win this World Series gets them through. But I, I don't think there's any doubt that fatigue has um, had some impact on his physical ability at the plate.
1: Um, so, so you don't I, think they should rest him tonight? Yeah,
2: right. <laughs> and, and that's the thing. And I said this to Bruce Bochi last night during our little – early beat writers roundtables. I don't expect them to be able to do anything about them, but I yeah. do, I do think you kind of have to acknowledge that, Hey, this is, this is an issue. And do you change anything? And, and Bochy's response to that was to give me that kind of slow <laughs> smile that breaks out. And he says, so you think he should change the way he hits after 177 games. So yeah, you're not going to change that either, but you do have to make some adjustments.
0: Well, that's, and that is an issue. Listen, Marcus is just going to have to work on that uh, in the offseason, in my uh, estimation, because he is a dead pull hitter. And uh, there's no question about that. And so he, he never goes the other way uh, with pitches. And, and so now they're throwing him away. And that's just what you were saying earlier about five. He was throwing those pitches in. The one that he threw center cut, I mean, Marcus jumped all over that and in, in hooked it foul. But that's that's the issue. They're not going to throw him those pitches. And I don't know why any – Team, any pitcher would ever throwing those pitches anymore. They're they should always work him a way. And you can be a mistake hitter, and that's that's okay. Uh, but usually mistake hitters are not guys who are really productive. Not guys who are going to have one hundred RBIs and one hundred run scores like Marcus did this year for the Rangers. So he's going to have to really work on this, in my estimation, in the off season and try to think about going the opposite way. And, and until you make people do that. Uh, you know, and then there are several guys in that lineup who do that. And there are those kind of pitchers, notably Josh Young. That's what he came up as, is an opposite field hitter. And they made him into more of a pull hitter, but he can still do that. Uh, there are several guys who can do it. So they, they need to get that going. So uh, if, if we look across this lineup uh, and what the Rangers did in game three, uh, and I wonder if, it, if they can do that in game four, of course, Andrew Heaney, uh, as you listen to this, probably Andrew Heaney has already pitched this game. Uh We'll see. But um, uh, they are counting him to do a better job. The lefties did a terrible job uh, in the first two games against uh, the Diamondbacks. And, they, uh, and Arizona has struggled against lefties all year long. Had a 7-11 OPS during the regular season and a six eighty eight OPS in the playoffs until they ran into the Rangers, and then their, and then their OPS is over 900. Um, Bruce Bochy says, well, it was just a lack of execution. So he's not afraid to throw the left-handers out there, and we'll see how they do. I, I'm not sure how many of them are, are going to get into the game. Our oldest Chapman had his uh, once again had his roller coaster appearance uh, in the game in Game Three, and actually got out of that, uh, which seemed like a miracle at the time. Um, but I, I just don't know. Uh, you, you know, Evan, does this feel a little bit to you like Game Four? is a uh, well we'll just see what we got here and uh, and obviously they're gonna put the pedal to the metal in all of these games but you're not gonna uh, I, mean, I, I guess everybody's up on the, on the table right everybody's yeah,
2: about- I, I, everybody's up on the table and I you know the, for the Rangers the the situation yeah. is that going into game four you now at least have quote unquote a game to play with if you'd be in a lot worse situation if you're down one to two one game to two at this point. Um, being up two games to one, uh, knowing that you've got Evaldi pitching tomorrow, knowing that if you lose one of these games here, you're still coming back to Arlington. I think will impact a little bit of the way that Bruce Bochy manages, but that's only if the Rangers are playing from behind, if they've got a chance to win this game, he is going to step on, on, on the pedal, going to make every move that he possibly can to get this team, uh, to three to one. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly how you push all those buttons right now because I really do feel like you know you can't trust Chapman in a situation. Your your back end guys are really Spores and and Leclerc. Um, you've got Gray, but you probably don't have. Well, you definitely don't have Gray tonight. Um. Uh, And so your bullpen options are limited. And if you don't have Scherzer, you know, you've got less starters. I don't know if the Rangers are going to have enough bodies to get to to go much further, but they just need to get two more wins.
0: Yeah, that's right. I would expect that be, you know, Heaney's getting a start. I would expect Dunning will come in behind him just like he usually does uh, in in the playoffs. And uh, that'd
2: be the plan, Kevin, right? what, What they wanted to do in Baltimore and what they wanted to do in each playoff game is if they could get 18 outs between Heaney and Dunning and then turn the game over to the bullpen. The question is, who pitches the seventh inning tonight?
0: Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. All right, that's going to do it for the Rangers uh, segment of our podcast. There was a lot to talk about there, and there'll be a lot to talk about for a little while anyway. Um, And so now that brings us over to the Cowboys, who are really uh, on a roll now, I guess. you know. I I don't know what to
1: make of beating the Rams. And before we get into the – Well, they haven't played this well going into a big game since – the san francisco game earlier this year
0: (laughs) yeah exactly so what are we supposed to make of that uh you know before we get into the cowboys i just want to say david i don't get your opinion on this uh you know everybody always says that whatever you got to do to win a championship a world championship uh then that's what you do you know flags fly forever um but uh, and I got to say that I was kind of all in on what the Rams did when they were trading off all those draft picks and giving all those guys all that money that this is the way to go. I don't know so much anymore. I mean, you know, when you when your team really sucks this bad, like the Rams do now, um, I just don't know if it's worth it uh, to do that. I think even, even if I knew that over the next 10 years, either you could have one of these two things, either you could be competing Every year for a Super Bowl, I mean, right there in the mix, or you win one and then you just suck after that. I think I'd rather have the competing for it, you know, every year. At least that's at least that's that's fun while it's happening. It's it's, it's brutal to watch the team just struggle like that.
1: Yeah, but it's frustrating for fans as the the falling short one year after another, and them convincing themselves where well, this year is different because we've been so close before. That mounts too, and I think that creates some scar tissue in a fan base. I I think certainly Cowboys fans are dealing with that over the last 28 years, uh, not even getting back past the uh, to the to the uh, NFC Championship game. But you know, I will say that to me, that's always a a really interesting discussion, and and I've come to believe—I didn't before—but I've come to believe some of that has to vary with the market as well. You know, I think LA is such a big market, such a celebrity-driven market, that I think in the case of the Rams, just grabbing one, creating creating some celebrities, being the hot thing and the hot place for a while, um, I think that probably registers with uh, a lot of their fan base in that region more than a team that is is right there but just hasn't broken through yet. Uh, you know, some other cities. I think it's a little different. I, I think being in the conversation every year is uh, is you know a, an emotional satisfaction. I don't know if that's the case in a market like L.A. where uh, they didn't have football forever. It came back in, um, and then you know you struck while the was hot. You created some you know they have a celebrity coach. There aren't too many more celebrity coaches around than Sean McVay now. Uh, so you always have that even when the team is not going well. Uh, Aaron Donald is a marquee defensive player. I think you have to build to what your market is, and, and teams that really resonate with their fan base kind of take on the, uh, the, the character of the area they're in. So I would actually argue for the Rams. I, I think you can still make an argument it was good and they're better served doing that. If they had not won one, but had gotten to the, say, NFC Championship game over this stretch, I don't know that there'll be much or any buzz uh, about the Rams in L.A. at this point.
0: So, well, You're right about that. You know, it's not really an NFL town anyway. I think, anyway, it's, different. Is, I think you know. it's different
1: for a Tampa Bay, which went all in and won it with Brady, and now he's gone. You know, I think it's a little bit different there. Uh, uh, and, and a lot of the smaller markets, I think just being in the conversation every year, Uh, means a little bit more. So, yeah, I I think it's market specific uh, to kind of how you make the argument.
0: Probably so. I will say that Sean McVay's uh, star took a little ding in it when he's he's got his thirty-something-year-old quarterback uh, running out for and diving for a touchdown yeah. catch. You know, <laughs> yeah. holy cow! I mean, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I just I, yes, I don't understand some of the Who things. Who hurt that his thumb say. earlier
1: in the game? Because clearly, he, he the thumb got caught in the helmet. You know, on the uh, uh, in the series before, so there there was some question about you know, whether he'll be able to come back in. And here he is, like, swinging out of the backfield to go catch a two-point conversion.
0: Yeah, uh, not not smart, not smart at all. All right, that's enough about the Rams. Let's talk about these Cowboys, David. Uh, so uh, they made a concentrated effort in that game uh, to get the passing game going. I guess we should yep. get C.D. Lamb credit for this because, you know, when he starts banging on the table saying he's got to get the ball, then they say, oh, okay, well, let's throw the ball to C.D. But I, I do
1: think – But he that guy- at such a high level that he backs it up, right? I mean, it just yes. reinforces, hey, you should get this to me. Uh, what he caught a career-high 12 passes for 158 yards and two touchdowns in that game, Uh, all equaled or surpassed uh, highs for him. Uh, Here's the thing. They threw to him 14 times. So 12 of the 14 times the ball was thrown in his direction, he came up with a play. Um, You will take that percentage every single time. And that's what's happened over these last couple of games after they had that Um, clearly there, you know, CD and his body language was not good and he was upset on the sidelines and, uh, you know, coming out of the San Francisco game. And since then, I, you know, I think there's only been three passes thrown in this direction that haven't been completed. And when you're that high above your normal completion percentage, why should you look elsewhere if you're making that work? So, um, you know, this is an offense for a long time. It's always been, well, you know, You're at your best where you get, um, you know, you you have a lead guy, but there's really anyone can be your lead guy on any night. And, um, you know, it doesn't always have to be built that way, though. And it's looking more and more like this offense is at its best where C.D. Lamb is going to get his eight to ten receptions a game. And then you're. Then your moving target on how you expose the defense comes in after that, and that's what varies from game to game. Not who's going to be your lead receiver.
0: Yeah, I'm just going to go back to something that we've talked about on this podcast before. But what Troy Aikman always said about how offensive coordinators are always overthinking this thing, and it's yeah. like you know uh, when when specifically he was talking about when Jalen Hurts would look out there and if, if a D- DB is playing soft on AJ Brown. He says, "I'm throwing this ball to AJ Brown," uh, which was probably a good idea anytime to throw it to AJ Brown. But, uh, but same thing here with, with the Cowboys. You know, they they get into their minds. They want to do this certain thing, and we're going to do this, if it kills us. Uh, and and it doesn't really work. And it's like, okay, let's go back to just doing what we do, and we'll and we'll mix in the other stuff as we go along here. Yeah. And and probably yeah. that was a better
1: idea to me to begin with. And I've always maintained and wondered that, too, because when when an offense is struggling, when you haven't established a player in the passing game or a player in the run game, when you're struggling and you haven't established that player, isn't it more difficult to get, you know, to right the ship, to fight through it? My point has always been, well, yeah, uh, you know, a Democratic offense is great. Spread it around as much as you can. Keep the defense guessing. I get all that, but when nothing's working, who are you going to? Because no one has been established as your primary guy, and you, and you just don't have that confidence and that repetition to get something going. Uh, now, if things are struggling, you, you get a sense of, you know, look, CD and, and uh, Dak are going to get something going here, and then maybe something comes from that. And we see this with a lot of good teams, right? I mean, that's what, uh, that's what Kansas City is with Travis Kelsey now. You mentioned the Rams earlier in their uh, Super Bowl title. That was Cooper Cup and Matthew Stafford. In any situation, um, you know, you you saw it with you know Jefferson in Minnesota. I mean, there are just certain guys that it's it's you, you're not you're not being not creative when you're not getting a premier playmaker the ball. You're just being. Stubborn in letting your ego on your scheme to override what your talent dictates you should do and where you should go, in my mind. Yeah.
0: Well, in the NBA, what do you do? You get the ball to your stars, right? Yeah, exactly. You know? And so the, it, if you have a star, and CeeDee is a star, you know, I, I've always maintained. But my, my only problem with CeeDee Lamb as a receiver is that he's still not great on 50-50 balls. You know, he's not a very big guy, and I think that's part of the issue. He is terrific, though, after the catch. He was well, at true. Oklahoma. Yep. And he, and he is uh, in the NFL. And so that's why – that is really why you want to get the ball in his hands. It's not just what he does catching the ball. It's what he does after he catches it.
1: And that's so, a lot about what this offense is and what some people are complaining about, right? Well, where are the vertical shots down the field? Where a lot of this is on crossing routes and curls and just run after the catch, and that is one of C D Lamb's strengths. So, yeah, get him the ball, get the run after catch, and now suddenly what should be a four-yard gain is a eight-yard gain and you have third and short. So, yeah, just it, this just plays to their skill sets as that uh, their best players, in my mind. And, and, and now you're starting to see that come through. I also think early there was a little bit of with the changes in the offense and as conscientious as Dak is and wanting to run the operation with what the coaches want and to allow these changes to take root – I think he was a little bit reluctant early in the season to say you know what okay I'm gonna hang in here an extra half second even though I should probably break out and use my feet and break outside the pocket and you know to, to go into that scramble mode a little bit I think he was more reluctant to do that early and I and after the San Francisco game uh, my understanding is him and Mike McCarthy spoke and he said you know McCarthy's like look you're really good in those situations. We want those situations. I appreciate, you know, all this. You're 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 running the offense the way we need to, but don't feel you have to stay in there to make a point. You know, listen to your feet. And you've heard Dak in these last two games talk after both games about how he's doing a better job of listening to his feet. And so much of this offense is tied to on that third step. If you don't have this option, then you need to do something else. And I think now he's comfortable – as soon as he gets that third foot plant and and there's no, uh, there's nothing there. He goes, well, fine. I got to buy a little bit more time.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's no question about that. He's much better that way. I I, I started to question it because of the, in the San Francisco game in particular, he just looked so yeah. leaden. I mean, he just looked. like these wild. last
1: two games, he is not. You know. Yeah. And, it, and I, it, it, there's a, a conscientious effort to go look. This is a big part of our offense too. And you know, they'll talk about it. They talk about the two point three second threshold. Uh, they, they say the first 2.3 seconds is the first phase of the passing game. After from 2.3 seconds on, that means several things. It means either your your protection is starting to be compromised, uh, none of the receivers can get open, and you buy, you need to buy a little bit more time to make something happen, or you know that. One of the say the a gap because of the pass rush becomes open, and there's a lane for Dak to cut up as he did several times in that Chargers game for some big plays. So, um, all of that is part of it. And, and you know, Mike McCarthy will tell you that north of seven plays a game happen after 2.3 seconds. Now, that's a that's a fair and he will tell you that usually. You know, three to four of those plays are going to be big plays if you're if you're operating the way you should be in that area. So it's that fine line where you want to trust your offense and you're you're calling an offense to beat a specific defense. But when you go into you know the the freelance stage or the improv phase, um, you can really make it work because look, the, the offense has the benefit of the doubt anyway because they know what they want to do on a play. But now, suddenly, when it's a scramble situation and its schoolyard, if you will, it it favors the offense even more if the offense are following certain principles and nowhere to go after the 2.3 seconds. And the Cowboys have worked on that, and Dak is outstanding at it. And you've seen that a little bit more in the last two games, and you've seen this offense come to life a little bit.
0: Yeah. No question about that. I want to go and talk about now as, as the Cowboys get ready for the Eagles. And so they have played the Eagles. They will have played the Eagles and they've played the 49ers, the other two powers in the NFC. Of course, uh, the 49ers have just fallen off the map since being yeah. the Cowboys. They got so drunk on that game, they
1: can't get back up. <laughs> Haven't uh, won. Haven't won since that game.
0: No. And one of the things that uh, that our old pal Jason Garrett said uh, after the the latest 49ers loss was that they're just putting too much on Brock Purdy. That they're they're leaning on him too much. They need to play to their strengths, which is their defense and their running game. Uh, which is very interesting to me because you know in that game and up, up to that point, Brock Purdy was really good at, at, at pressing the ball downfield. Uh, he was uh, you know it wasn't like he was just dinking and dunking and and uh, uh, and kind of you know playing kind of a poor man's uh, offense there. He was really uh, making things happen. Maybe, and I have not watched the 49ers game since then. I've just only read about them. So I'm not sure everything that's gone wrong there. But if the Cowboys were uh, able to beat the Eagles uh, this week, David, does that
1: mean the Cowboys are the best team in the NFC? Well, they're back in the conversation with the top three teams, right? I mean, we talked about this early in the season, and really, my views haven't changed. I think Dallas, San Francisco, and Philadelphia are the three best teams in the division. I mean, in the conference, however you want to order them. That's going to change over the course of the regular season based on injuries and and schedule. You know, the Eagles have a really tough schedule coming up soon. Um, so I, I still think those are the three best teams. Now, now you're looking, well, is there anyone that can join them? Is, is a Detroit a possibility to join the conversation? Uh, it appeared early they were, Baltimore destroyed them, then you went, well, hold on a second, and, and they rebounded and, and you know, came back in, in this, you know, the game earlier this week. So, um, I, I just think Dallas,, uh, San Francisco and Philadelphia, are the top three teams in the conference, and the order will change over the course of the regular season. And I really don't envision a scenario where one of those three teams doesn't represent the NFC in the Super Bowl. And, but and a lot of that's going to depend on um, health at the time and uh, where these teams are. Very quickly on party, it's kind of interesting. Um, you know what you're describing is when was Dak's biggest winning season as a starting quarterback? A rookie. He was thirteen yeah. and three. And he did a lot of what Brock Purdy did. Just, you know, take minimal risks, turn this game over to everybody else. Uh, you know, don't turn it over and just make, you know, a player too late or a series or too late that's gonna, you know, decide this for us. But now, you know, Debo Samuels out, Christian McCaffrey was, was beat up some, Trent Williams was, you know, out, they're they're outstanding offensive linemen. So Purdy was being asked to do more. Now he shows he can do more, and the team isn't winning as much. So it's always – there's always this pendulum swinging a little bit with quarterbacks in the league about what's asked of them and uh, who they need to be in the moment.
0: Yeah, there's no question about that. Uh, It it, it is surprising. I don't know. I tell you, the game's in the NFL now. It just feels like – it used to be and maybe that's just because of the parody and because of things that happen in a game and, and certain things happen and, and the certain uh flaws are exposed and then coaching uh, goes into that and they they fix those things and they move on to the next game uh i, I it's it's hard to 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 watch the 49ers just pick the Cowboys apart like that and then lose the next three games. And then the Cowboys all of a sudden put things back together and they, and there's, and they're playing better. We haven't talked about the Eagles. I want to talk about them some, you know, it, it it feels like uh, in the little bits of the games I've seen this year, that Eagles play and of course, reading about them, that they just, uh, they play well enough to win. You know, they're, they're not, they're not rolling it up on anybody, really, uh, and they they seem to 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 struggle a little bit early on, and then they do what the Eagles do, and and uh, and certainly AJ Brown makes a a big impact on that offense. Uh, you know, he's such a tremendous player. Um, it it is unbelievable. I was watching that game the other day, and someone was saying, "Can you imagine what Tennessee was thinking when they traded him to the Eagles?" It's like, why would you trade this guy? I mean, this this will explain to you. Why Tennessee is in the condition it is in now uh, as, as a as an organization, but um, I I I do I am intrigued going into this game that as Dak pointed out after the game the other day
1: that he and Jalen have rarely gone head to head so once. far yeah. yeah just once the, these are teams that are battling for supremacy right now and for the foreseeable future this is this is the rivalry. Rivalry that will determine, uh, you know, not exaggeration, supremacy in the NFC over certainly this season and potentially over the next, you know, three, four years, which can be a lifetime in the league. And the fact that these two have only met once is fascinating to me. Uh, but but each of them have been injured at, at different points. Each of them played one game against the other last year, not against each other. Uh, so in some ways, this is actually you can argue in some ways this is actually the start of like really maybe the the heat of this rivalry at its peak. Uh, if these two guys can can be on the field at the same time with the rest of their teammates for uh, two games a season and. You know, two games next season.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, i interested in that because you know, uh, Jalen has certainly improved more over a two year period than than I don't know uh, any quarterback I can think of because. Yeah. Because I saw so much of Jalen play in college, you know, we saw what he was at Alabama. We saw what he was at Oklahoma. I know everyone who did. saw him in college is just amazed at where he is now as a quarterback in this league. Uh, the people I talked to when Jalen was at Oklahoma it said, "Oh, he's you know he's a great great kid, you know, really smart, uh, you know, great leader." All the things that you you obviously knew about him already because of what he did at Alabama. But they said we just really have to we can't do with him what we did with Baker Mayfield and with Kyler Murray. You know, they just couldn't, uh, and and so he goes to the NFL of all places and gets better. I mean, that just doesn't, that, you know. Obviously, everybody gets a little bit better as they go along, but, but with a rookie head coach who people were really questioning, you know, when he got the job. Yeah, I mean to to, uh, well. I think that the genius of what the Eagles have done, and what I love about the Eagles, and how he roseman and how he puts his rosters together, is that they have an identity. This is who we are. We're gonna we're gonna play a certain way, and that's what they're doing. Uh, And and I think that's one of the things that has enabled them to do this. You know, I I've, I've always said that quarterbacks are are victims of whatever it is that they're asked to do. You know, if you if you put Joe Montana in a different kind of offense, other than that West Coast offense he ran under Bill Walsh, w- would he have been one of the greatest quarterbacks ever? I don't. I don't know. You know, he didn't have a lot of great physical talent. Uh, he's a really smart guy, and I think that's what enabled him to really succeed in that level. Uh, I always said the same thing about Archie Manning. I think he might have been the best of the Mannings had he not played for the Saints his whole career. You know, one of the worst teams in the, in yeah. the NFL when he played. So uh, you, you know, you have to make sure that you're getting the right guy, or that you are getting a guy and then tailoring your offense to what he does best. And uh, to me, and and that's what uh, uh, you know. That's why when we talked about that earlier, I always feel uh, that coaches outthink themselves a little bit let's let's figure out what we do best and what we can uh do with the personnel that we have and and let's do that so that'll be interesting going forward david i want to ask you one thing before we get out of here uh <laughs> i want to say something about the mavericks um in their fast start here i guess they're four and now um the three and oh three and zero, yeah uh the uh i watched the first I watched the game against the Spurs because uh, I want to obviously see the Mavericks, but I also wanted to see Victor Wimbanyama and how he would play. And I got to tell you, I watched that first quarter when they gave up 45-something points, and I thought, this is the worst basketball I've ever seen in my life. I, I, I don't know if I can watch this all year long. And then in the second half, they they started Derek Lively at center. And I cannot think of a guy other than Luka in the last 20 years, a rookie, that the Mavericks have inserted into a lineup and made such a difference. Uh, you now, that game, he had 16 points and eight rebounds,
1: I think. 10, and, yeah, 16-10.
0: Yeah. He just, joined, like,
1: Jason Kidd and, like, three other guys starting off 16 and, you know, double-double at that level. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, just amazing what he was able to do. And, and you know, uh, I know that there – the, the opinions were really split when he came out as to what kind of impact he would make. There were people who really thought that he had the potential to do this. And there were people like me who looked at his stats in college and said, really? I mean, you it, not? yeah. Yeah. I mean, th- he didn't do anything in college. Uh, I, I guess it's a little bit like uh, Dean Smith being the best defender in the nation. He held Michael Jordan yes, at 16 Jordan. points a game when he was in college his senior year uh, yeah uh, how much difference do you think that this kid can
1: make uh, in this Mavericks team this year well he he perfectly accepts and embraces his role which is a big thing right yeah just coming into this league he's trying to carve a niche for himself they want him for defense they just want him on the pick and roll uh, you know they, they want him to take some of those lobs from Luke off the pick and roll uh, he's gonna have to crash on that but but um, you know, the, here's a guy who's perfectly willing for his role, because the the way the NBA game is played, he's going to get more shot opportunities than he did in college. And this is what you hap, happen a lot in college now uh, that the games completely flipped from where it was. Right now, you get a big guy in college, but it is so perimeter oriented. Uh, there aren't a lot of def- there aren't a lot of offenses that can figure out how to use uh, a big man who is not a who's basically a guard in, in you know, center's clothing sort of thing. Um, and, and Lively is not. He doesn't have that, you know, put the ball on the floor, shoot jumper skill set. Um, but there's still, you know, it, it's a failure of coaches not to incorporate this into the game because so few teams now have a lively body of Lively size um, that, that can run the floor and be a presence defensively. And give you just enough offensively. And look, he's been working with Tyson Chandler. That's an outstanding uh, comparison. And and you know, Mavericks fans will certainly take that one. Um, and, and he's going to have that sort of role in this league. And and that's a very valuable role. It's a guy, it's a guy you can have on the floor all the time, right? What what happens so often now is there's some centers in this league that are good, but you can't have them on the floor at certain parts of the game. Um I don't know that you're necessarily going to need to take him out in any part of the game. You know, uh, I, I think his game is well-rounded enough. You can keep him in and that's just a huge asset to you defensively. And this is what this team look when they decided when Kyrie Irving was coming back with Luca, it had to, it had to get some interior defense and improve their wing defense. And that's what the emphasis has been in the off season. And, and certainly the early returns are that this team is not nearly as mismatched as it was last year.
0: No, not at all. Uh, the, the, yeah, the, the whole center thing has been, and, and you know, they they could never work it out last year at all. They couldn't figure out yeah. what to do with Christian Wood or JaVale McGee, and and uh, you know, and Maxi Kleber is is a is a nice player, but but he's not going to be able to stop people at the rim uh, like. Uh, and at Lyons his himself. age,
1: his his body and his role are diminishing. Yeah, there's no question about that.
0: All right, that's going to do it for our podcast this week. We thank you for listening in. Uh, By the time we have the next podcast, we'll know who the World Series champions are. We'll know uh, if the Cowboys have a viable uh, contention that they're the best team in the NFC. And we'll know how well the Mavericks are going to continue to play. So from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks, and we'll see you next time.